0: To get to be up here, I got to get my pull myself together as I'm sitting there. Just, man, it's just so fun to get to honor Jeff, and I'm not gonna have any time to preach this sermon. So, uh, I'm gonna share a story that wasn't planned. And I just want you to know, like, the character of that man. Uh, when we were originally planting Heights, I remember setting in Friday South. I've shared this story probably every year. And, uh, and David, or not David, uh, Jeff comes back from Texas and is laying out the vision for what would later be Heights Church and Heights Community. And while he's talking to me, he's like pumped. He's the aunt talking about missional community, the gospel. And I was like, bro, why don't you lead? Like, why don't you lead this thing? I'll just go get a job. Why don't you do this thing? And I'll never forget, man, the words he said was because, and this is not true what he said, but it, it's a testimony to his humility. He said, because people won't follow me the same way they follow you. And I thought that was like the greatest display of humility because he, in many ways, is the visionary leader behind our church. He's just not up here preaching all the time. He literally does everything. <laughs> Anything that you see that is Heights community comes from the mind and the fingertips and the iMac of Jeff Nail. Everything. And so it's just an incredible testimony to him. He's been faithful brother to me for so long. I mean, he invited me to church for the first time and now look at us. Just incredible. You know, so I love that man uh, more than life in many ways. And so I don't know how I'm going to cram all of this into like what is probably 27 minutes now, but I'm going to give it my best. Amen? Amen. All right, here we go. So thanks for tuning in. For those of you that are on Facebook Live, somebody go tell Kite's kids <laughs> that it, we're going to go over on time. So uh, I just went wired for 35 minutes, you know? That's just not the way that God designed me. So we're currently in a series called "Lest We Turn, where we're looking at one of the most, literally, one of the most... Uh, incredible historical documentations, literally in antiquity. That means first century. Uh, There has never been anything pinned or this much information pinned on one single figure in all of the first century ever. And yet we have that in our Bible, which is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? And so let me remind you now, we're kind of setting in this tension of godly desire and envy. And so if you remember a few weeks ago, Pastor David preached, and he looked, we looked at uh, the relationship between Jonathan and the soon-to-be King David, and we called that godly desire. And we said that in godly desire, what you're saying is more for you and less for me, more for you, less for me, more for you, less for me. And then I got to preach, and we got to look at the kind of this tension that exists between the soon-to-be King David and Saul. And it was most certainly not godly desire at all, was it? It was envy. And so we saw King Saul wrestling with envy. And then I said that envy is more for me and less for you. So it's the opposite. It's more for me and less for you. If you're a note taker, I would write those things down. And so Saul continued to stew in envy, which was comparison and resentment and comparison and resentment and comparison and resentment. And then it kind of manifested itself in fear and anger. And so King Saul tried to kill the soon to be King David with a spear, not once, but twice, if you remember, and then he now, if we were to continue reading, has since tried to kill King, King David again, or the soon-to-be King David, however you want to think about it, again, and also Saul tries to kill his own son, um, but we know that if we were to continue reading that he does not get to kill his son, and also Jonathan and David's relationship continues to be kindled and flourished, and Jonathan finds a way for King David to escape. His dad saw lots of names, if you've not been in here, sorry, you're just going to read and listen to a lot of scripture and sermons. And Jonathan helps King David flee King Saul, and Saul, King David ends up in a place called Nob, N-O-B, which is what Pastor Paul read for us. Now, before we can dive into this text, you cannot understand this text today apart from a very basic understanding of what's called the law. And most certainly, you cannot understand the text apart from the gospel, the work of Jesus and how he has fulfilled the law. So it's going to be the longest introduction in any sermon you've ever heard in your life. Okay. And it's about 40 minute introduction and about five minutes of sermon. Sound good? All right, here we go. So what is the law? we got to start with this. I'm just going to get after it. What is the law? Whenever the Bible mentions the law, Tristan, if you could put that up. Shout out to Tristan, one of our students serving back there, by the way. Tristan doing a killer job. So what is the law? Whenever the Bible mentions the law, God is usually referencing all of the law. And if you're not certain what that means, that's the first five books of the Bible, also called the Pentateuch, also called the Torah, or also called the law that's the first five books of the bible penta meaning five and so you don't have to memorize all that although the pharisees would have had that memorized but while the law is the law that is all-encompassing it is one thing theology affords us the opportunity to kind of break the law down into three different ways we just talked about this in our covenant membership class if you were in there so tristan if you could hit the next one for me what i want you to see in the law is this you don't have to memorize all this but i would encourage you to write this down Because it's going to be helpful when you're in the New Testament. It's helpful whenever you're reading through the Old Testament. So this is the law. The law is not just the Ten Commandments. The law is actually 613 commands that were given to Israel to set them apart. The law was supposed to reveal the character of God and also reveal the mission of God. That's not how Israel treated it. And so within the law, there are three different aspects. There's a civil law, which is similar to what we have here in the United States. We have a civil law. Okay, the reason we don't do much of what Israel had to do is because you're not in Israel, right? And if you're in this room, more than likely, you're not an Israelite, and you're not a Jew, so you're under the American civil law that we would call the Constitution, or the federal laws, or state laws. So civil law still exists, it just doesn't exist in the same way for us. Does that make sense? Okay, and then you have what's called the ceremonial law. These are the laws that were getting that were uh, they taught Israel how to be purified or how to be set apart as holy, how to look different than the rest of the nations. This was the laws that made you. Clean that made you purified. Now we are not stuck under ceremonial law because we have a cross and we have a Jesus and we have a resurrection. And so Jesus makes us clean. And so I got asked just this week on Facebook, I got asked to chime in and this lady was asking. She said, Hey, I want to get tattoos, but the Bible says I can't get tattoos. That's a Levitical ceremonial law that was specifically for the Jews. So tattoos do not make you unclean because Jesus makes you clean. Jesus makes unclean things clean. That's what he came to do. Also, if you were to submit to a ceremonial law, we would all be damned because the reality is part of the ceremonial law is that you could not wear a shirt that was made of two different fabrics. So this polyester cotton shirt I have on makes me unclean, okay? According to the law, the Jewish law, the way they were called to dress was for a certain way to set them apart from the rest of the nations to reveal the character of God and simultaneously reveal the mission of God. Likewise, and this is going to maybe sound a little, uh, sounds a little harsh, but this is true. Ceremonial law for women during this time, just to land it. Whenever women during this time were experiencing their menstrual cycle, do you know what they had to do? Ladies, any idea what you had to do during this time? You had to walk around the village screaming, unclean, unclean, unclean. Okay, so praise the Lord for Jesus, all right, that you don't have to do that, right? We don't even know all about that, right? And so the ceremonial law, listen, has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He makes unclean things clean. You cannot clean yourself. And then you have the last bit of that is the moral law, and that is the Ten Commandments. Now, the moral law still stands. Whenever Jesus gave his sermon on the mount, he looked at the moral law or looked at the Ten Commandments. And what he did is he elaborated on them. He did not discount them. And he said, if, he said heaven and earth will pass away before an iota, before a dot of the law is removed. I would rather those things pass away. And then, and then all throughout in Jeremiah, 1 Corinthians, we are told that the law is written on our hearts. What happens whenever we sin, we experience what? Conviction right? Yep. That comes from the Holy Spirit revealing to you, hey, you're breaking the moral aspects of the law. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so there is the law for you, not just 10 commands, 613 commands. You don't have to remember everything. You just have to have, I feel, I did not know how to teach it without giving you a working knowledge, at least, okay? So big idea for you, Tristan, if you can give it to us. The law reveals what the gospel saves us from, which is legalism, religion, and death. No one in the room is morally pure. No one in the room apart from Christ is ceremonially pure. And all of you sped on the way to get to church, so you've all broke the civil law. (laughs) Or you text and drove on the way here, right? Some people are probably watching Facebook. We're watching the sermon now in the car. Sinners, okay? And so (laughs) they have broke the civil law, right? We break... The law. The law reveals what the gospel saves us from, which is legalism, religion, and death, because whenever we try to uphold this law in and of our own strength, that's legalism. That's the definition of religion, and if we're going to do that, not believing in the cross, it will only show us how terrible we are and lead us to death, all right? Three things that the text shows us today. The law reveals the mission of God. We're going to see first, and simultaneously, this is hard because it's really two-in-one points here, but The law reveals secondly, but simultaneously, the character of God. And then the law is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's start with the law reveals the mission of God. If you're ready, say ready. Ready. All right, then David, here's the the scripture, Tristan. Then David came to Nob, and Ahimelech, the priest, um, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone? And why is no one with you? And so check this out, a little refresher for you. David is on the run and he goes to Nob. And so earlier in the the book of 1 Samuel, we were at the temple, which was originally in Shiloh. I don't expect you to remember that, but that's where we kind of kicked off the book of 1 Samuel. And if you can remember, that was whenever Samuel's mom consecrated him to the priesthood and we met a priest named Eli who thought she was drunk. Turns out she was not drunk. She was just praying. And so Eli's like, what are you doing? Are you drunk? There's no, you know, totally not acceptable during that time, but expected during that time because the world was in such chaos during that time. So Eli thinks that Samuel's mom's drunk. She's just praying. She consecrated Samuel to the temple that's Shiloh. Since then, that temple has been destroyed, and there's been a new, they kind of reestablished the tabernacle in a place called Nob. And so the high priest, Ahimelech, has come, and he answers the rapping, the beating on the door to King uh, David, and he's trembling. And so Ahimelech is saying, like, why are you alone? Why is no one with you, right? And you got to think about, why would he say that? Because this is God's anointed, this is like the soon-to-be King David. He's a, he oversees thousands of soldiers, a huge political figure. And so he would, Ahimelech would be coming and saying, why are you here? Like, you don't travel alone. So what is going on? The only reason he would be trembling is if something terrible had happened. And so he sees that, him, that King David is alone, and the reality that he is alone has brought a tremble, a fear to him. This is a the writer is trying to get us to see this is a very heightened situation. Sometimes we read this stuff just kind of black and white and our minds boring. That's not at all what's happening here. A very heightened situation. Verse 2 goes like this. And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, okay, this is this gets a little murky. The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Very, very vague, right? Very vague. And if you read your reading, that didn't actually happen. Okay, so it gets a little... So, what's happening here? Because what David doesn't say is, hey, Ahimelech, I'm on the run. King Saul turns out tried to pin me against the wall twice with a spear. So now me and my merry men of valor are out here and we could use some bread. That's not what he says. That's actually what happened. Instead, he speaks like really cryptic, really vague about what is happening. And so, why would David lie? And this is where it gets interesting and where I didn't feel like commentators actually did a very good job on what was happening. Why does David lie? The text does not fully afford us the luxury of knowing. And so we can't read into the Bible. We just have to sit in what the word has given us. And so without reading too much into it, we can draw a few conclusions. First, we know this. It's a lie to sin. It's a sin to lie. Right? That's one of the top tens, one of the moral aspects of the law, right? And so we know that it's a a sin to lie. That's unchanging. The moral laws unchanging but there are many that believe that David is referencing the true king the God of Israel that he's not referencing King Saul at all and that it is quite I have to say possible that it is the true God of creation that has sent him out on this journey when I read the text in a minute you'll see why but what I said in and I asked the question is when is it okay to break the law which feels a little murky doesn't it but sometimes there is civil disobedience that happens where we have to quite literally break the law and then as seen in this text, there are times where it looks as if and where it is as if the law of God is being broken and yet God allows it to happen. And that's where I say it gets a little murky. So let me put this into a real life situation for you and for me. Uh, maybe you've heard of a, a guy by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer? before. As I said and thought about this, what point do we break the law? When's it okay to lie specifically? An ex- a specific example uh, came to mind. So if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, during the reign of Hitler, while they're killing Jews by the millions, not by the hundreds or the thousands, but by the millions, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was um, led out of Germany by a couple of American friends and brought to New York City. As quickly as Bonhoeffer got to New York City, the Big Apple, he left the Big Apple, and he went back to Germany. And so I have a quote for him that has that I just want you to see his character just to kind of get to know Bonhoeffer a little bit. And in this quote, Bonhoeffer says this. He says, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America, he wrote. I shall have no right to take part in the restoration of Christian life in Germany after the war unless I share the trials of this time with my people. Imagine that. He gets taken away from there. And then he's like so convicted, he has to go back to enter into that world. That's something that none of us in this room are thinking, I want to go be a part of that <laughs> in Germany during that time. right? So I share this goal. We need to see his heart, see his character. What's interesting about these two scenarios is that King David is on the run and Bonhoeffer is on the run. King David is on a mission. We're going to see that in just a minute. Bonhoeffer is also on this mission. Bonhoeffer went from being a small town pastor to a man who played one of the largest roles in the assassination attempt of Hitler, and there's no one at all that would look at this and think, no, I don't think that Bonhoeffer should have done that, right, but but what would Bonhoeffer had had to have done to sneak a suitcase into the Führer's office to try to blow him up? Man, he would have had to lie, he would have had to plot, he would have had to deceive, and no one looks at Bonhoeffer and says, that dude's in sin. Maybe some people do, but across the board, you know what we say when we look at Bonhoeffer? Thank you, Jesus, for that man, right? Now, did he break the law? In some ways he did, but he also broke the law out of godly desire to save human life. And so many people would agree, many commentators would agree, and pastors would agree that just as Bonhoeffer would have lied to protect the lives of innocent Jews, so also David is lying to protect the life of the priest Ahimelech. And I think that we can further say that that's true, because in the next chapter, if we were to keep reading, which you will continue reading, Ahimelech, whenever King Saul comes, has no idea what's actually taking place. Plausible deniability. He has no idea what is taking place. Let's see that in the next chapter. Chapter. This is an extraordinarily unique situation, okay? It, he's not breaking the law just to serve himself. It's like, oh, you had a bad day at work, so it's okay to go commit adultery. That's not what's happening here in the text. Right? You had a bad day at work, so it's okay to have an emotional relationship with someone at work. That's not what's happening. What's happening is trying to save the life of this man. Verse three. Wait, keep rolling. Verse three. Now then, King David says, Verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? I love this. Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. This is so cool. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, listen to this, truly women have been kept from us as always when we go on an expedition, the vessels, that's the bodies of the young men, are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey, how much more today will their vessels be holy? And so then King David is talking to this priest and alluding to this reality that this is a holy mission. It's not just a normal expedition. And so it is possible, I can't say for certain we don't know, but it is possible that the true King, the God of all creation, is leading King David and his merry men of valor that we're gonna learn more about later out on this expedition. We don't know, but it does allude to that reality for us. To be clear, I'm not trying to cover up King David's sins, and I don't think the Bible is either, because whenever that dude sins. The whole world knows about it. It, it, The the Bible does not afford him the luxury of hiding in his sin. It spills all the beans for us in this book, doesn't it? And so I don't want to, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that it does look as if King David is walking out this plan that God has given him. And so in that then, what the law is revealing to us is that David lives in a highly sinful world. It is broken. It is messy. It is jacked up. But what is revealed in the law is that the mission of God has to prevail in this moment, or the covenant that God set with Israel would not come to fruition. So King David has to be saved. He has to be kept safe during this time. The mission will advance. That's what's being revealed. Second point is that the law reveals the character of God. This is incredible. The law reveals the character of God, and that is that God will stop at nothing to see his kingdom advance. He will stop at nothing nothing check this out verse 6 this is so cool i might be the only one that geeks out about this it's okay it's totally i'm used to that it's cool i love this text it's so fun verse 6 so verse 6 so the priest so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence this is crazy right here which is removed from before the lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away the priest gives david the bread that's crazy for us in america we're like who cares about that that's stupid for first century Israelites, it would have blown their mind. They would have been like, what is happening here? And here's Why? I've got to teach a little bit more about the ceremonial law and what keeps you pure and what sets you apart. And so if you can picture with me, have this temple, kind of picture a temple with you. And Nob, you can kind of see the flames and torches, the dude dressed in his garb. You have the high priest, Nob, who's sitting in there. The priest, according to the book of Leviticus, which lays out ceremonial law in chapter 4, explains what the bread of presence does and what the purpose of the bread of presence is. Is. And so on the Sabbath, the priest and the priest alone would go into a space that's called the Holy of Holies. This is the most sacred, the most holy, like the most extraordinarily private and holy space in all of creation was called the Holy of Holies. There was a curtain that separated humanity from the Holy of Holies because there was fear that if humans beside the priest caught a glimpse behind the curtain, that they would be eradicated, that they would just cease to exist. Okay, so it's like a holy place. So the priest would take this bread in there on the Sabbath, where there was no sacrifice, this bread in there, and it was 12 loaves of bread, which would represent the 12 what? Tribes of Israel. And the purpose of that bread was to reveal to the people of God that just as the priest had come in and, become, and come face-to-face with God Almighty, so also in the symbolism of that bread, God was saying, I too am coming face-to-face with my people. And so only the priest could enter into the Holy of Holies because he had been set apart, because he had been consecrated, because he had been seen as unclean. Likewise, since humanity couldn't go in there, this U-shaped bread, 12 loaves is placed in there because Israel had been set apart, because Israel had been consecrated before the Lord. And God was saying, while you cannot physically come in, I want to come face to face with you. I want to be present with you. Does that make sense? You tracking? So only those who were allowed to come into the presence of God, who had been consecrated, who had been set apart, could go in there. What's insane about, what's crazy about the priest giving King David this bread is this. That it's not just an exchange of bread. Like this is, in this moment, the best way I know how to say it is like, this is an affirming word from God the Father to his son. That he is in fact the true king of Israel. And whenever the king shows up and asks for bread, you give him bread. Like this is an affirming word from the father to a son that he has, in fact, been set apart, that he has been seen as holy, that he has been consecrated, that he has been um, sanctified. It is an affirming word from the father to the son that God the father wants to come face-to-face with this King David. Like This is an incredible moment in history for us God's anointed God's appointed God's rightful king his heir to the throne the one from whom Jesus will come is standing in the temple the father is consecrating the son I'm the only one thinks that's cool all right it's good it's okay I'm cool with it I'm cool with it this affirming word is so good so what's beautiful about that is this This is the last part of that that is so striking Like, not only is the father consecrating King David as a son, and father is consecrating King David as a king, but you also better believe, church, there are two priests standing in that room then. Like, King David is the intercessor for Israel to God. The representation of the people of God to the father, and likewise, the representation of the father to the people. Like, it's an incredible moment in human history right here that israelites would have thought are crazy that americans think well just like what you think it is right now like me and so just a man emoji is what you give me okay cool <laughs> man okay got it what is the law revealing about the mission of god it's this man that god will stop at nothing to, to to advance his unstoppable mission that god gives identity not the law that god sets people apart not the law that god makes people holy not the law that god is going to establish his kingdom not the law and the salvation is only going to come through one. And it most certainly is not the law. But who is it? It's going to be Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to come in as the perfect son, as the perfect priest, as the perfect king, as the perfect fulfillment of the law. Third point then is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We might hit this thing on time. Almost on time. Okay. Okay. We're getting there. Oh, geez. Mark 2, 23 through 28, our gospel bridge. Mark two twenty three through 28. I believe they have it for us. Listen to what Jesus says about this moment in history. Okay, this is a 1,000 years later, 1,500 years later. Jesus himself, this is a red letter says, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as, he made their, as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you, I love this, have you not read what David did? That's like me looking at a doctor and saying, have you never been to a hospital? <laughs> or like, or like a, a college professor and I me mean, like, did you not take algebra? You know, like the Pharisees knew they had this memorized, you know what I'm saying? Like they knew this story look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read, I just love every time, have you never read what David did when he was in need and whenever he was hungry and he and those who were with him, so he was not alone, he who entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, which is a different high priest, and ate of the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any, he says it, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now this thing is pregnant with incredible things that we could get into. But the primary thing that Jesus says here is really two things that Jesus says. First thing he says is this, David's not in sin. Like even though David kind of didn't give maybe the whole truth to this priest, Jesus says that's Okay because it advances the mission of God, and it reveals the character of God. It also simultaneously says, well, the priest wasn't in sin, and giving him the bread out of the Holy of Holies, which was crazy. The Pharisees, like, it would have, oh my gosh, if we could pay to be there, church, they would have been like, what? Like, you know, like, they would have freaked out. Listen, oh, I'm gonna get there. I'm jumping in. And so, and so he's like, he wasn't even, he wasn't even in sin. Either. It would have shook them. I mean, it would have completely rattled their cage in every single way. That's the first thing he says. Neither of those men were in sin. The second thing that Jesus says is that the Sabbath was given for men. And so while I would love to preach on Sabbath, we don't have time for that. But here's what he's saying. Sabbath is a gift. Sabbath is also a part of the law. So what Jesus is saying is that the law was given for man as a gift, not to hinder them or hinder us from living on mission, not so that we would get all up in our arms and, and feel like we, we got this thing figured out, and then we look down our nose at everyone else like the Pharisees did, but no, so that we could, it could reveal to us the character of God. You can't keep the law. It's impossible. 613 commands. Come on. I mean, we barely know all 10, the 10. We barely know the top 10. Amen? Amen. It's, I mean, it's sad, but it's true, okay? It, but even that reveals what? That the law doesn't save us. Yeah, yeah. We don't even prioritize the top 10. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's only possible because of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law. And so the law alone, listen, if the law and the law alone was all they had and all they did was stick to that law, listen, it would have led to the death of David. It would not have advanced the kingdom of God. He would not have become king. It would not have set into motion the unstoppable kingdom of God that is coming through Jesus Christ, right? If all they did was say, nope, this is it. This is the law. It wouldn't have revealed the character. It would not have advanced the mission. It would have been a horrific scenario. And so Jesus says, it is 100% okay that this has happened now, for the sermon, okay, uh, that was the intro, now we got, <laughs> we got nine more minutes to do th- 30 minutes worth of work, okay? Check this out, here's how dark the, here's how dark the enemy is, okay? As we've been looking at envy in the last week, saying more for me, less for you, more for me, less for you, the priest could have done that, my characteristic state at stake here, my position's at stake, people are viewing me, more for me, more for me, more for me. He doesn't. He looks at God, and he looks at King David, and he says, more for you, godly desire. What's so dangerous about envy is that it is one of the primary ways that the enemy chooses to kill the mission of God and just destroy and defame his character. And what's scary about this is this, man, we love religion. Religious hearts, if you could put up this next one for me, Tristan. Religion says, I do, therefore I am loved. And the gospel says, I am loved, therefore I do. Tim Keller quote. Take that in for just a second. I do, therefore I am loved. Gospel says, I am loved, therefore I do. Like That is the nature of our religious hearts. We live in religion. I'm using religion in the negative connotation of the word. you tracking with me? Okay. Dude, that's our hearts right there, church. Our hearts are no different than the Pharisees. Uh, What do we do? We love comparison. We love the comparison game that comes. We love setting in the discontent. Sometimes we love the discontent. Think about that. We like not being able to shake the thought of someone. We love not being able to feel settled in. We love the desire of doing more and doing more and doing more and getting praised for that thing. We're no different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees are here looking at Jesus, by the way. And what are they doing? They're comparing their religious good works to Jesus. Try that. Let me know how it goes. You want to compare something, right? The Pharisees are comparing their religious good works, and they find, listen, such great discontent with Jesus and the disciples that just a few verses later, because of this moment here where he's referencing King David, they say, we got to kill him. He's out, of the, he's out of control. He is out of this world. Who does this man? We're going to kill him. And it is religion that has darkened their hearts to such a great degree that they kill God, listen, whenever religion, whenever you're trying to save yourself becomes God, it'll kill God, yeah. right? You don't just break the law, you break him. You tracking? Yeah. Like you, when we break the law, we don't just break the law, we break Jesus. And he willingly enters into the Pharisees had not captured the heart of the law because the gospel had not captured their hearts. Yeah. And listen, if the gospel does not capture your heart, religion will. And instead of looking at the cross and everything that Jesus has done, instead, you'll look at yourself and you'll try to compare yourself to everyone else, not to the cross. And you can compare yourself to everyone else all day and feel pretty good about yourself. But man, when you look at the perfect, hanging in complete disarray, broken, body beaten, saying simultaneously while, while he's getting stones lobbed at him on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You don't look so pretty anymore, do you? If you're gonna be discontent about anything, be discontent about the reality that you love religion more than your Savior. Wow. That's what we should be discontent about. The enemy uses religion to fuel envy. He loves it. Like, the more religious our hearts, it's like Satan loves it. He just feeds off of that. Be religious. Do good works. Pray the right prayers. Say the right things. Fall prey to, like, and all the, and, and here's the deal. The enemy tricks us with really beautiful, good, God-honoring things that should point us to Jesus and instead helps us to make those things point to ourselves. And what happens? Envy begins to fuel Satan loves religious hearts. I think one of the most clear displays of where envy comes out in the Christian is on social media. Just get on social media today, on your friends' pages that proclaim to be Christians. Look at the debates between mask and no mask. Look at the debates between vaccine or no vaccine. Look at the debates between what's happening as far as social injustice is concerned. And look at Christians. Not non-Christians. Look at Christians. Non-Christians, we don't have the same expectation for them, church. They're not Christians. But we are. Those that are professing to be. Look on just look on their social media today. Whenever you're bored, not driving, but whenever you're bored, okay. And and look at listen. Look at how opinionated they are apart from God's word, and yet they will look down their nose. Right? What are they doing? Comparing. What are they experiencing? Discontent. What comes out in that post? Anger and fear. Just look at it. It is right there. It is shocking. So Jesus has said he is Lord of the Sabbath. That he is Lord over the whole entire law. He determines what is lawful, what is not lawful. Listen here. Jesus is the very character and the nature of God. Jesus, literally, the law puts on flesh. The word of God puts on flesh, comes and walks among us. Why? So that we can see the character of God. The law reveals the character of God. If we can't wrap our mind around that, then you look at Jesus. Because Jesus also reveals the character of God. What else does Jesus do? Man, advances the mission of God. Most certainly, doesn't he? God who puts on flesh, walks among us to live in perfection, to go the cross as we've established, to be resurrected to new life. Why? To advance the mission of God. To send the Holy Spirit into the church. Why? Well, so that we can reveal the character of God to a broken and lost nation and country and world. So that we as the church and dwelling with the, the Holy Spirit and dwelling in us can walk out what we would call missional community. Not so we can show up on a Sunday, kind of check that box and feel really religious and good about ourselves but rather so that our God-given identity has been given to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ and powering of the Holy Spirit can send us out on mission to reveal his character and to reveal his mission, to reveal his character and his mission. The gospel kills envy. It kills envy, and the gospel kills religion, the religious heart. Should we do religious good things? You're like, now I'm torn. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, like we should totally pray and spend time in the word and walk out missional community, give faithfully and above and beyond and in everything that we do. But should we do it in a way that points to us? That's when it becomes religious, yeah. right? Whenever we do it in a way that points to Jesus, we say, man, this is what Jesus has first and foremost done for me, identity given to me. Now I respond to that identity. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. I am loved. I am unconditionally. You are loved, unconditionally loved, regardless of your good works. So go be obedient. I am loved, therefore I do. Jesus fulfills literally every, last thing I'm going to say, Jesus fulfills literally every single aspect of the law. Tristan, you put the law slide back up there for me. Last thing I'm going to say to you. Jesus fulfills every single aspect of this law. Once he finds that, you can keep up with me. Jesus fulfills the civil law. In every single way. Sorry, the point with all three of them on there, buddy. There you go. Thank you. Jesus fulfills the civil law. That's the laws of the land. We still have a law of the land. You break the law, it's going to break you. Right? You speed on the way here and you get caught, what happens? You get, everyone knows that, yet you look so shocked when he comes <laughs> up to your window. You murder someone, what happens? You go to jail. You go to prison. Right? You break the law, the law breaks you. That's a civil law. You know that the requirements for us breaking the laws of Israel are death. And so the king comes, and he takes our death penalty on the cross. He literally takes what we deserve, fulfilling the civil law. It does not free us from the civil law; it just frees us from Israeli civil law because we live in where America. America. Okay, that's why. That's why whenever people are like, "Well, you're a Christian and you don't do this," but like because I ain't a freaking Jew, dude. I'm a Christian who lives in America, so the life looks different than it looks there. Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. What happened whenever Jesus dies on the cross? What is torn? The curtain is torn. Oh, God, I pray that we could hear the the curtain tear right now. And you're like, why is that a big deal, Pastor? Because literally the curtain that was there in the temple that separated the people from where that bread sat, whenever Jesus died, tears. It literally rips from top to bottom, seven inches thick. It rips down the middle, revealing what? That God doesn't just come before his people anymore as a priest or as a bread of presence, but Jesus has come and literally come to meet us face to face, not just in some bread. It's incredible. Like he fulfills every single aspect. And so it's not a priest that makes us clean that we have to go give some confession to, as some religions would tell you. But there's a very real high priest that intercedes on our behalf. And right now, do you know what he's doing? He's not in Florida, retired. You know what the, what the King of Kings is doing? He's standing between the Father and between us, just reminding him that he fulfilled the covenant. Just saying, Dad, hey, you don't have to take out your wrath on them. You took it out on me. You don't have to punish them. You punish me. They're, not gonna, they're, they're clean because we make them clean. They're going to do sinful and ignorant and dumb things. And yet, I died on the cross and resurrected in their place. There's resurrection hope for your people, Father. He's just there pleading for us in the Spirit. keeps us here he fulfills the ceremonial law and lastly he fulfills the moral law but does that mean we get to do whatever we want no because he writes that on our hearts and he says no if you're going to reveal the character if you're going to reveal my character if you're going to advance the mission you're going to do it with moral you're going to do it with morals and so churches that come in and claim moral autonomy are trying to be god churches that fall prey to what's called progressive theology are trying to be god because what they're saying is they're claiming moral autonomy. There's no need to be moral. There's no need to do church discipline. There's no need to hold anyone accountable. Well, who's God in that scenario? Well, they are. And so Jesus comes to fulfill the moral aspects of the law, not so that we can do whatever we want, but rather so it would reveal to us our need for him. That we can't keep it. Amen. Amen. All right. A little choppy, but we made it through. All right. Let's stand with me for uh, communion. We'll dive into this thing. Let's read every week, 1 week, Corinthians. Uh, hopefully you grabbed a communion cup on the way in if you'd like to partake in communion. If you did not, grab one, but would like to. There's baskets uh, up here in the front for you. Uh, Paul says this. He said, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he took bread and said, this body, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper saying, check this out. Listen up. This cup is the new covenant. What is Jesus saying right now? What is he saying? He's saying, I fulfilled everything else. I fulfilled the old covenant. I fulfilled the Hebrew covenant. I fulfilled the law. I fulfilled the Pentateuch. I fulfilled the Torah. In this moment, what he's doing, he's, he's saying like the fulfillment that we saw between King David and the priest is coming to fruition right here in this text. This is the cup of the new covenant in my Blood. I mean, listen to this. Jesus has become the priest. Jesus stands there as the king. Jesus goes to the altar that is the cross. He is the perfect blood sacrifice. He's literally fulfilled every single aspect of the law. And we get to see it here in communion. This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For those of you that are saints in the room taking communion, Let me just encourage you that this is not a religious event because religion has been put to death. But this is a gospel event. And so before you take communion, it's good and right to recognize, God, I'm I'm not morally clean all the time. I do break civil laws that I don't care anything about as far as speeding and texting and driving and all these things. I do deserve death. I might actually lead to someone's death. So thank you, Jesus, for making me clean. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my penalty. Thank you, Jesus, for... Loving me just right where I'm at. God, help me to look more and more like you. Reveal your character, advance your mission. As you take communion, just set in those words.